The New Testament talks about it that way. Today, what we want to talk about is Jesus, not just as our king, but as our priest. Jesus as our priest, and we're going to talk about being cleansed by Christ. Next week, we're going to talk from this other perspective of Jesus being our prophet. So you have to wait to hear the title of that one until next week. Uh, but Jesus is our priest. He's our priest. Um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, God has always been gracious. God has always been good. Uh, and some people say, like, no, like, there's no grace in the Old Testament. The, grace, the Old Testament is all, like, law and it's rigid, and grace came through, through Jesus. Well, it's true in some ex- respects, but there has always been grace. God has always been gracious and good. And so in the Old Testament, what God does is he sets out, again, looking from this perspective, uh, Jesus is our priest, the problem Jesus comes to fix is not with Satan, it's with us. It's sin. How many of you know we have a sin problem in this world? Like, we have, we have a problem. How many of you go to bed at night, and you, when you lay your head on your pillow, you think, man, I, like, lived up to all of my expectations for myself today. Like, how many of you, like, live up to your own expectations? You, you like, have this image in your mind of what you want to do, and you lay your head on your pillow at night, and you say, not only did I meet my expectations, I exceeded them. Every word that came out of my mouth was, was loving and kind and added value, and every thought that I l- allowed through my head was that way, and all of my actions were good and right and perfect, and oh, like, I'm just so thankful that I exceed my own expectations. Anybody like that? Because I would love to talk and to learn some things. Either you have lowered expectations or uh, you maybe don't see yourself correctly, but most of us, most of us are fully aware of our own brokenness. I mean, we lay our head on our pillow at night and we think, like, I blew it. Like, I, I didn't. I wasn't the person I wanted to be today. And so we know, like, we live with this sense of our own sin. That's what the Bible says. Is like it just pulls all of our brokenness, all of our flaws, down into, boils it down into one word and just calls it sin. It's, it's all the ways we fall short. Um, and this view of the cross, being cleansed by Christ, is the view that God has come to fix this problem of human sin. Yes, he came to to be king over uh, Satan and to overcome the powers of evil, but he also came to fix human sin. Now, in the Old Testament, God made an arrangement with his people where they knew that their sin had been dealt with. And he did it through a priest. And a priest's role was to stand between God and sinful human beings. So what the priest would do is kind of play this mediator role, right, between God and us, human beings. And the priest would, had, had all sorts of different functions, but the priest would make atonement for the sins of his people. Do you know what, what sin does is it destroys us. Like what, what happens with sin is when we choose to, to rebel against God, we're essentially saying like, I think I can run my life better, and it's a sense of rebellion, and what rebellion does is it disconnects us from God and then it just starts to make a mess of our own lives and then it makes a mess of our relationships with other people. That's what sin does. It's, it's, it's incredibly painful what ends up happening, the ripples of impact. And so um, God comes and he says, I want to make you one again. I want to bring you back to me. I want to fulfill like this relationship, this covenant that I make with you. And so there's this word in the Old Testament called Kippur. Now, you have notes in your bulletin that if you don't want to write all this stuff down, you can take notes on that. Um, 
This word kippur in the Old Testament is, means to wipe away, to cleanse, to forgive, to cover over. It's a beautiful word. How many of you know, like, it is a beautiful thing to be cleansed, to be, to be forgiven, to be free? There's this sense of kippur. And so one day a year, there was a yom kippur, which is the, yom is just the, the Hebrew word for day, and it's the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And on this Day of Atonement, it was, it was this, this, this great like sort of gathering and spectacle, like all the sins of the people. You imagine all the sins of the people sort of being brought together and the priest would come and would stand before God as a mediator between holy God, sinful people. And he would go into this place called the, the Holy of Holies, where in this place there was the Ark of the Covenant. Are you familiar with this? Have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Indiana Jones fans? Um, so you got a picture there. Um, so you have the Ark of the Covenant. And this was like the epicenter of God's presence. This is where heaven met earth, was like in this holy place, this Holy of Holies. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, it was like a chest. And so inside the Ark of the Covenant were, were the tablets of the law. So the law is not our standard for ourselves. It's God's invitation into covenant relationship. This is God's standard to say, like, here's what I'm inviting you into. I want you to be a missional people. I want you to live with me. <coughs> I muted it after I coughed into the microphone. <laughs> Sorry. Send me the bill for your ear nosing throat doctor this next week, uh, burst eardrums. <clears throat> Where was I? Um, um, yes, yes, yes. Tablets. Thank you very much, Lane. Tablets are in the, in the Ark of the Covenant, and the tablets represented the law. It represented God saying, I want you to live in relationship with me. I'm going to teach you how to live so you can be my missional people in the world. But the problem is we couldn't do it. We just kept falling short constantly. And so the tablets became a reminder of all the ways we fail. That's what they became a reminder of. There was, is this, it, it just a reminder of how much we, we mess up. But on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were these, these figures called cherubim, this lid. And um, the lid, anybody know what it's called? The mercy seat. Beautiful. So the mercy seat, you have these two angels, right? Turn to your neighbor and go like this, right? Yeah, you can do that. You don't have to do that, right? And these angels, but that's cool. I like this. And, but the, the angels' wings don't touch. There's, there's this like little space between the wings of the cherubim, these angelic figures. And this space was like, this was the place that God met with his people. This is like, this is the place where heaven meets earth. This is the most holy place. And so what would happen is on the Day of Atonement, the priest would take some, some blood from a sacrifice and he would sprinkle to just sort of like cleanse the place again from the sin of, of human beings. And the image was that God would sort of descend into this mercy seat, into this place on top of the law, on top of the place that reminded us of all the ways we blow it of all of our sin and sickness and brokenness. And God would come into this place not to sit and to judge and to condemn, but to offer mercy and forgiveness and cleansing. 
and to wipe away the guilt of our sin. Is that good news? God has always been merciful. God has always been gracious. This is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful thing that God has done. And he did this throughout the Old Testament. One day a year, you would know, you would know for the rest of the year where you stand with God. You leave this arrangement. And by the way, the, the sins, like the blood of the animal, wasn't sacrificed on the Ark of the Covenant for the sins of the people. It was really interesting. On the Day of Atonement, you would bring this other goat. It was called a scapegoat. And the priest would come and would confess the sins of the people. Like, would confess the sins of all the people. It was probably a long day, and the goat probably got tired. Um, But would confess the sins of all the people on this goat. And here's what God said. I want you to lead the goat out into the wilderness and just let it get lost out there. Now, that's, like, really cruel for the goat, right? But uh, it found greener pastures out there. But the beautiful thing is, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, my sin is gone. It's gone. And when I leave that day, I came in maybe heavy carrying all of the, the ways that I've blown it and I see this thing and I see like the, the beauty of God's sort of presence coming down and I leave this place knowing I am forgiven. I am free. I am wiped. This sort of, the sin has been wiped clean from me and that is a beautiful thing to know beyond the shadow of a doubt where you stand with God. That you don't have to live your life in fear and in wonder, am I good enough with God? Are we, are we okay? Have I been good enough today? Do I need to do more? Do I need to put more money in the offering? Do I need to serve more to, to make God, you know, sort of love me? You know your sin has been dealt with. You're forgiven. You have been atoned for. This is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Now, all of this imagery in the Old Testament gets pulled, gets sort of pulled into the New Testament when they start talking about Jesus. It says that Jesus has now become our mercy seat. That he has now become that place where God comes not to condemn and judge, but to show mercy and forgive. This is what Romans 3 verse 25 says. Check out Romans 3 25. And the word, the word for mercy seat in the New Testament is hilasterion, by the way. It, it holds all this Old Testament atonement language and it pulls it into the New Testament and it says Jesus is our, our atonement, our, our, our mercy seat. God presented Christ. And my translation says this, as a sacrifice of atonement, but the literal word is mercy seat. Jesus is that mercy seat, is a place where God forgives and and offers grace. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. This is God's atoning for our sins. Um, so, some of you may have another translation of this, Romans 3.25. Uh, if you have, anybody have an English standard version? Anybody? Might be a couple. I see hands like going like this. I'm like, hey, I want to like auctioneer stuff, but I won't do that. Um, the English Standard Version uses this word called propitiation. Have you heard that word before? Propitiation. It's a fun word to say. Anybody want to say it? Propitiation. And it's, it's, it's not the actual word, but it is a translation of this mercy seat idea. And some translations have said what Jesus has done, what this verse says is that God... Through, through Jesus, what Jesus has done is turned away God's wrath. That's what the cross is. That The cross is like God's wrath being poured out on Jesus. 
And, and many people understand the gospel this way, that, that this is what Jesus did, is he took God's wrath. What about God's wrath? Like, we don't talk, sometimes I, I get people every once in a while like, hey, you're getting pretty light on wrath these days, like we need some more hellfire and brimstone. I don't get that very often. Um, but it's like, you know, you talk a lot about God is love, God is love, God is love. Yeah, but God is also wrath. And I would argue, I would say, no, 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 God is not wrath, but God has wrath. God is love. It's his essence, his DNA. God is love, but yet God has wrath. The Bible is very clear about that. What does wrath mean? Well, wrath is this word orge, orge, and it means a right view judgment of human sin. That's what wrath is. Wrath is not fury. Wrath is not anger. It's not vengeance. You know, that's not what wrath is. Wrath is a right view of sin, of human sin. It's judgment that God sees us as we really are. And when we are living in sin, what happens is we're self-destructing and we're destructing our actions hurt those around us. So for example, let's say you're a parent, right? You, you're, you, you have um, a child who is growing and who's learning you know, to sort of live on their own, but you see them going down a wrong path, like down a path that you know is going to lead to someplace painful, Right? And so what happens is, like, you see them, they're staying out too late, they're hanging out with this crowd that's going to all the wrong places, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're starting to do this stuff that you know this is not going to end well. And so what do you say as a parent in that moment? You say, who am I to judge? Right? Who am I to judge? They'll figure it out. Please say no. Is that what you say as a parent who loves your child? No. What do you say? We need to talk. There's a problem. This is, this is not okay. You have a conversation. There is this sense of ju- you are in a position as a parent to judge that activity. This is harmful. And it's, you're heading in the wrong direction. Sorry, I'm like looking at you guys. Um, I'll go this way. You're, I'll look at my own kids. You're in a... Um, and a parent, you have to, if out of love for your child, there is this sense of judgment and steering and direction. And if, like, your children don't respond, what happens? Like, there, there's, there's punishment. Like, there's, like, there are boundaries you set up. Why? Not because you want to condemn your child, but because you love them. This is what love does. And this is what God's wrath is. This is the picture of wrath. It is God's rightful view of human sin. And he will, he will come to us in judgment and sometimes in, punish, in punishment. But do you know that, that there are a lot of times as you read the Bible that God punishes us by our sins as much as for our sins? You know what sometimes God does to us? Is he says, you're going this way, I'm just going to let you feel the full weight of what you're doing. And he just sort of pulls the protection. We just, just drops like a ton of bricks on us and we're just left with it. And then we have a choice. Will I, will I turn back to God and want to say, God, I need your help, or will I just sort of drown in it? And so God comes to us. There's this judgment, and it's right, and it's good, and it's true. Wrath is not the opposite of love. Wrath is not fury. It is not anger. God is not like Homer Simpson, a rageaholic, addicted to rageahol. Um, nobody else watches the Simpsons. I see one person laughing. There is condemnation for those of you who watch The Simpsons. Um, I, I had a friend tell me one time that they watched The Simpsons. That's how that worked. Um, all of my sins have been forgiven and nailed to the cross. So, um, 
God, this is not ra- a rage. This is God's view. This is a view of human sin. And, and we need to have, God needs to have judgment. It needs to have wrath. Um, there's a Croatian theologian named Mirslav Vulf. Um, I like to say that. Vulf. He drives a Volkswagen as well. Um, in his book, Free of Charge, here's, here's what he says. He's like, um, I, th- I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. That it wasn't, wasn't it just some sort of like idea we put on to God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and loves every person and every creature. And that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. Here's what he says. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and my cities were destroyed. My people were shelled day in and day out, and some of them brutalized beyond imagination. This is the destructive power of sin in our world. And I could not imagine God not being wrathful, not being in judgment on that. Or think of Rwanda. And he says here, writing from his time, in the last decade or in the past century, where 800,000 people were killed in 100 days. How does God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the, the perpetrator's basic goodness, wasn't God wrathful with them? Wasn't he angry at that? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who didn't have wrath at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love, but God is wrathful because God is love. Does that make sense? So if you have an idea of God's wrath that is, is fury and anger, that's not true. God's wrath is judgment, like a parental judgment on human sin, and we want that. We want God to, to be that. But take a look at what John, John chapter 3, verse 36 says. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Like whoever... Um, trusts Jesus, has given their life to Jesus, has life with God, life with God that will go on forever, all eternity. But whoever rejects the Son, so whoever like says, no, 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 like God, I know that you've acted on my behalf in the cross, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep in my rebellion, I'm going to keep doing things my way, I think I can do a better job with my life, thank you very much, they will not see life. They can't because it's in the Son. For God's wrath remains on them. So let's get this straight. Everybody outside of Christ is in some ways under judgment. Like there is a, we're, we're still bearing the full weight, the guilt, the shame of our sin. We're, God's wrath, his judgment is on us. It's not that he's not loving us. He's calling us with this judgment toward him. But it says the moment we trust our lives and we're on the other side of the cross, God's wrath is no longer on us. We're free. We, are, we have eternal life. So there is wrath in our sin, and on the other side of the cross, there isn't. There's, ju- there's no judgment. We're forgiven and free. This is great news. We're watched, wiped clean. That sounded kind of strange. Like, sounded like Never mind. I won't go into that. Um, our sin has been wiped away. Uh, it's this beautiful thing. Now, let's stop here for a second. Um, there is a view of the cross that says, do you know what the cross was? It was God's wrath being poured out on Jesus. Like if, if, we're, if, we, have, if we have judgment, we have wrath outside of Christ, but in Christ we don't. It's gone. Where did it go? And so there's this view of the cross that says it must have been poured out on Jesus. 
And I want to caution us against that way of thinking. The Bible, and I can say this very, very like, specifically, the Bible does not say that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. Like, look at the text, and we can walk through them. I would love to have more conversation about that. I very much want to caution us against that. The cross takes away God's wrath. We know that. That's what the clear, Scripture clearly says that. But we ask the question, where did it go? And if you need an answer, um, I think we, we get into problems of where did the wrath go? It went on to Jesus. This is what John Calvin says. So we're going like, to just sort of unpack this because I think this is, this is freeing. This is transforming if we'll, if we'll go there. John Calvin, absolutely brilliant dude. He was like out of this world egghead. Um, he was a lawyer. Like, at, I think he was in his late teens when he wrote Institutes. Um, it was just phenomenally smart, but he was a lawyer. And in his sort of like systematic attorney's brain, he, he read verses like this and he says, wait a second, there is wrath, but there isn't wrath. Where did the wrath go? It must have been poured out on Jesus. Why? Because it had to go somewhere. God has this wrath and judgment and punishment stored up. It has to go somewhere. So that's what the cross is. The crown of thorns was God's idea. Like it was like God's wrath, a picture of his hatred at sin, the nails in Jesus' hands. Like this is what John Calvin proposes. Like this was God's wrath. His, the punishment, the suffering was God's wrath being poured out on Jesus as Jesus took our sin. The problem is the Bible never says that never says that it is God's wrath poured out. In fact, we're going to talk about this next week, if you read the way the first disciples proclaimed the gospel, they, they consistently say through the book of Acts, we killed Jesus. It was our wrath. It was our sin, our lawlessness, like oh, venting onto Jesus, God's perfect son. And so I want to caution us, and just to kind of like make a, uh, here, are, these ideas are, are really prevalent. Uh, and and this, is, um, this is called the, by the way, if you're curious, this is called the penal substitutionary theory of atonement. It's based on kind of like justice in a law court. And um, it just goes beyond what the scriptures actually say. So here's what John Calvin says. The, our, this is our acquittal, our atonement. The guilt that held us liable for punishment has been transferred to the head of the Son of God. Right? So God is sort of pouring this wrath out. This is what Wayne Grudem says. God poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. Um, this is what John, John Piper says. And I, I, like, I love John Piper. I just, I think this image does, does damage to us. The trigger, listen to this, the trigger of the flamethrower of God's omnipotent fury is about to be pulled. And as it is pulled, Christ steps between us and the flamethrower and he absorbs every bit of it onto himself and he dies because of it and we ourselves do not feel the heat. This is, what, this is a view of the cross that I would argue Jesus saves us from his angry father. And this is not the way the Bible teaches us. Like, that God is not somewhere else outside of Jesus pouring out wrath on him, but where is God when Jesus is on the cross? He's in Christ. This is what the Bible teaches. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God is the one who is taking the wrath of human sin onto himself. And so, um, I, I, yeah, I want to I want us to caution us away from this like mechanical thinking of it, it had to go somewhere. Why? Why did it have to go somewhere? You know the story in, in Luke chapter 15 
when Jesus, like he, he tells this beautiful story, the Rembrandt painting, uh, I think behind me, of the prodigal son or the forgiving father. And, and like the father, his son, it, you know, just sort of destroys him and takes, it, takes his heart and his money and his inheritance and he goes off and he squanders it in, in wild living. And all of a sudden what happens is he feels the wrath of his own decisions. Like he feels this sort of like disconnection and the weight of his sin and what he's made a mess of his life. And the son comes to his senses and comes home. And he's a long way off and the father sees him and runs to him and embraces him and welcomes him back into the family. This is the good news of Jesus. This is what happens when we turn from our sin and come back to God. God welcomes us. Where did the father's judgment go? Like where did his judgment on his son go? He didn't have to go like seeing his son coming a long way off. He goes and he wants to welcome him home, but he can't because he's full of wrath and judgment. So he goes to the stable to find an innocent sort of uh, servant and, and beats him and then can go and welcome his son home. That isn't the gospel. Where did it go? Where does, your, where does your forgiveness go? Where does your punishment go when your child comes to you and says, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? You don't have to punish their sin, do you? punish somebody else. This would not, you would not be a good parent or a good friend or a good person if you said like, no, 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 I'm angry at you and I want to forgive you, but my anger has to go somewhere. It's going to go to someone else. God forgives. God forgives. God is a forgiving father. God is a loving father. And what we know is that we are under punishment. There is punishment. There is wrath. And when we come to Christ, he forgives and he wipes it away and we're clean, and we're forgiven. And we don't have to wonder where we stand with God. And we can know that Christ is our high priest, that he has given himself to take all of our sin away, that we are healed, that we are cleansed. The problem that we live with is not in God. The problem is in us, and we need to be cleansed. So the good news of the gospel is this, that to come to Christ to say, I'm lost, I'm broken, I'm full of sin and it is making a mess of my life and I cannot fix it. I can't save myself. I can't deal with it. But God, I trust that you have and that you can. And to turn and to come to Christ, to step into the light, is to be healed, to be cleansed, to be forgiven. This is, this is good news. So James says this. He says, um, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. And to turn around, to repent, to come to Christ is to be forgiven. It's to be forgiven. You can know that you, where, where you stand with God simply by surrendering your life to Jesus, by saying, God, thank you that you took the, my sin. You took my sin and I'm free and forgiven. You can know in that moment you are forgiven. But do you know what it takes to be healed? It is to actually speak the words of confession. Like we, we are forgiven the moment we turn to Christ, but James says, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. This healing, it happens when we step into the light. When we say, I, I have to tell this to you because I can't keep it in darkness anymore. Confession is our way out of darkness and is a beautiful gift that we get to be a people of grace for each other.
that we get to be people who, who know that we all fall, fall short. We know that our own sins have been forgiven by Christ, and we get to extend mercy and grace to others. I, I, I just want just to sort of hold this out to say if you're here this morning and, and you're in this place of like, I, I'm sort of drowning in this thing. And I, and I feel the weight of it. To know that Christ is offering forgiveness and to know that you are surrounded by people that you can speak a word of confession to and you will receive love and grace and friendship as you walk toward healing together. This is what the body of Christ does. This is the good news of the gospel. God, we thank you that you have taken our sin. You've taken it. God, that we, as we come to you, we know that we don't have to wonder where we stand with you. But God, we see the extent to which you are willing to go to take our sins away. And God, we say thank you that you have been the final scapegoat, that you have been the final sacrifice, that there is nothing more needed because, God, the cross is your mercy seat. God, thank you that you extend mercy to us as broken as we are. And so, God, we just humbly confess that we are broken people in need of your love and grace. And we need to extend it to each other. God, if there's anyone here who's never received, who's never just turned toward you, who's never accepted this forgiveness, God, I pray that you would give us the courage in this moment, not tomorrow, not sometime later when it's more under control, but give us the courage in this moment to step into the light, to speak a word of confession and freedom that we might be healed. God, we thank you for what you are offering us today. In Jesus' name.